throughout the years, as they continued to do reruns of it, I'd have, you know, something show up on my front porch, like uh, a case of chopped pineapple or a case of uh, Pam dry fry or something like that. Because when they advertise those things in syndication and they rerun them, they have to give you the prizes they talk about. Um, Wait, so you get canned good residuals? <laughs> well, I- <laughs> That's incredible. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Paul Williams. Wait, introduce him first this time? And Dr. Stuart Brigham. Really? Hi. Sticking, Hi, it, sticking it to you, Stuart. Mm. <laughs> okay, so treating menopause in primary care can be challenging. There's lots of therapies out there some of which don't work that well. So we wanted to ask an expert on the show to kind of talk us through the options. Mm, Matt didn't help this time. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Amy Tremper. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Michigan Medical School. She went to UCLA for undergrad where she has degrees in both psychology and physical therapy. Also went to UCLA for medical school before completing an OBGYN residency at UC Irvine and now is practicing at the University of Michigan. She is an expert on menopause, birth control, exercise in pregnancy, health and sex education, and she has agreed to come on on the show tonight to talk to us about the treatment of menopausal symptoms. So without further ado, here's our discuss our discussion with Dr. Amy Tremper. Any, uh, Stuart? No, I, I, okay. I couldn't think of anything for this one. Hold on. D- don't stop recording yet. I got to think about Shocking. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This mm. is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, Matt. <laughs> Very enthusiastic. And uh, Dr. Paul Williams. Uh, Matthew, a pleasure as always. And we're very proud to introduce our guest for tonight, Dr. Amy Tremper from the University of Michigan. Hi, Dr. Tremper. Hi, guys. Hi. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and uh, get your fancy audio set up, which is probably better than uh, some of ours. Uh, we're mm. very impressed. <laughs> I, I raise my children to be efficient and effective and make my life easier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you imagine a chicken coop, that's what our setup looks like right now. <laughs> I am. So Stuart and I record from what we call the podcast fort, which is... Uh, it's a makeshift podcast studio in my children's playroom because there's uh, I was <laughs> I was kicked out of our previous studio, which was an office in my bedroom uh, by my four month old daughter. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> All right. Enough about us. So uh, I'd like to start off by asking you when people ask you uh, if you're at a party and people are asking you what kind of thing you do for a living. Wh- how do you answer that question? I, I own up to it. I say I'm an OBGYN. Mm, the first I guess, one. Unlike in, unlike internists, people probably actually know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I do both. Um, what is a book that you think every physician should read? From early on in college, I read a book called Endurance. It's about a voyage to Antarctica by Ernest Shackleton in 1914. And it really applies to all parts of life. It's a matter of uh, sticking to a task, preparing for it, being flexible and able to change your mind, being a good leader, and gathering information and using that information to be able to make decisions. So it applies to a lot of things, but I think during medical school, sometimes when things get rough and you feel like, you know, you're going through the Mm -hmm. wilds of Antarctica, um, you always can find something that'll give you some courage and some hope and stick to itness. That sounds like a good one. I've heard of that, the Shackleton expedition, right? The Mm -hmm. famous South, they were trying to go to the South Pole. That's correct. And what is a hobby outside of medicine that you do to promote your own wellness? Uh, Exercise, reading, and a hot bath before I go to bed at night. 
<laughs> I think that's the best answer we've heard yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've we've heard exercise. I'm guessing you're referring to the the hot bath. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, exercise sounds awful. The hot bath sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty pretty good for promoting wellness. Okay, what is the best advice that you've ever received as a learner? It's better to overstudy fifty percent than understudy one percent. And. Uh, on the topic of learning, what are you reading right now to stay up to date with the evidence in your specialty? Um, usually the uh, OBGYN official journal, um, Obstetrics and Gynecology, it's called the Green Journal. And then there's another journal called the Gray Journal. And then various articles that come up at grand rounds or at morbidity mortality rounds. And what? When do you find the time to do that? Because most most physicians have fairly busy practices, and it's kind of do you squeeze that in in the morning, in the afternoons? Is it on the is it is it on the weekends? During the bath, <laughs> yeah, the bath actually works pretty well for that, um, and actually it helps you sleep a lot. Some of the articles, um, I I, t- I, t- <laughs> I tend to do it all during the day um, in between seeing patients or even if I have a patient with a problem that I'm not quite sure how to treat or how how to diagnose, um, I'll go online and look for it. We have a a pretty extensive ability to research things um, through the university website, but it's it's sort of an ongoing process. If I have questions about things or I'm wondering something, I'll go figure out how to get information on it. And then on weekends or if I'm preparing a talk or if I'm uh, have medical students who are interested in certain things that are rotating through. I'll, I'll do reading at that point in time. So, Dr. Tremper, tell us something about yourself that we will never, ever forget. <laughs> you, I, I put myself through uh, undergraduate and medical school um, going on game shows because I'm, I'm from uh, California. Uh, <laughs> fantastic answer. Yes. Yeah. Like what game shows? <laughs> like, are, are we talking about like, like chicken and rooster game shows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, real, real life game shows. Um, I started my career as a game show contestant in high school on the dating game. And, <laughs> uh, I, I, I won a trip to see Arlo Guthrie. Well, actually it was at UCLA Royce Hall for, so it was about a 60 minute trip, um, and dinner. <laughs> And then throughout the years, as they continued to do reruns of it, I'd have, you know, something show up on my front porch, like uh, a case of chopped pineapple or a case of uh, Pam dry fry or something like that. Because when they advertise those things in syndication and they rerun them, they have to give you the prizes they talk about. Um, Wait, so you get canned good residuals? <laughs> well, I- <laughs> That's incredible. I used to. No more. Oh, my gosh. And then the second game show um, was uh, a game show name? called High Rollers, and it was Alec Trebek's first game show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I won um, mostly furniture and things that I sold, which was fine, but it was a little bit of a hassle. So um, on syndicated game shows, which are the best ones to be on, you can only be on three syndicated game shows in your lifetime. So at that point in time, I was just before I started medical school, I subscribed to People Magazine um, in order to get a much better base of knowledge of current events. Um, And I I wanted to go on a game show where they just gave you money. And I wanted to have have it be something that you didn't have to buzz in for the answer, like Jeopardy, not that I could be good enough to be on Jeopardy. But um, our first year of medical school, the Goodson and Todman Production Company came to UCLA and asked uh, medical students and dental students to take a trivia test um, for one of their game shows. And I was selected, and I selected a game called Tic-Tac-Doe with Wink Martindale. Of course. And I won, in those days, uh, it was a lot of money, but I won about about $2,000. Holy cow. (laughs) But that was a lot of money then. Medical school tuition, I think, was only about $820 a year at UCLA. Was so, it like $820,000 now? Something like that. <laughs> that is, I don't, think we'll, I don't think we'll ever get a better answer. No. We, we need to retire that question. No. Yeah. That was, yeah, I think so. 
I think we just need to talk about more more about her game show history. I'm so tempted. I was just... going to say, I really want to hear about menopause, but I can do this for 20 <laughs> yeah. minutes. I'm fasting. How, how in the world do you even... I just... There's professional just game the show contestants? I, could, I got 15 minutes worth of stuff. <laughs> I, I think I heard you say that there's a rule you can only do three syndicated game shows. Like, how did... I had no idea. It's amazing. Well, remember that movie, 64,000, or that show $64,000 question they made a movie with Robert Redford because they had a lot of cheating. Oh, quiz show. Yeah, that's a great movie. And so the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission said, okay, only three syndicated game shows for that reason. Wow. That's fantastic. My career was begun and over in a flash. Well, yeah, you're right. In all fairness, we cannot ask that question again. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. (laughs) Okay, I guess we should we should probably talk about menopause, but you know now it seems like uh, yeah, that's not nearly as interesting anymore. Okay, so something exciting to something even more exciting. <laughs> menopause, nice menopause is thrilling. It's actually more fun when you give a lecture and you can show Larson jokes, but um, that's not possible here. So. Well, I do want to ask you. Uh, we like to start off really basic on the show. If you had to explain menopause to somebody or if you were just writing like that first paragraph on Wikipedia, how would you explain menopause? Um, Well, technically, it's a cessation of menstrual bleeding for a year. And that presumes you're not pregnant, breastfeeding with no pathologicals. Some of the statistics about it um, in this country, the average age is 51.4 years plus or minus about two or three years. And some of the things that could bring an early onset of menopause are smoking, um, surgery like a hysterectomy where you may be compromising the ovarian blood supply, um, genetics, and nutrition. And it's interesting because they just had an article in an Indian woman's magazine or something that the average age of menopause there has been dropping for a while to age 48. So I don't know if it's genetics or environment or whatever, but I thought that was kind of interesting. And it's just unknown at this time why that's happening? Um, They postulate nutrition. They postulate um, sort of a genetic component to begin with. Uh, But no, they really haven't done the studies. It's just an epidemiologic um, piece of knowledge. Premature ovarian failure is under age 40. And then the happy times before menopause or the perimenopausal or some people call it premenopause can last for 10 years, uh, can last for two years. It's just very variable. Um, and, and the question I ask people to sort of rule out or rule in menopause is, um, are you having hot flashes and do you feel like you want to kill people more than usual? <laughs> That's a fair question. More than usual. That's an important key. More than usual. More, yeah. okay. <laughs> I guess you'd be referring, re- referring to the mood swings with that question then. Yeah. <laughs> Can you refresh us a little bit on the role of estrogen, progesterone, and, and what exactly is happening with the, with the hormones during menopause? Yes, estrogen uh, that we make, and men make estrogen too, but the estrogen women make um, is E1 or estrone. That comes from the ovaries and from fatty tissue. Estradiol, which is the uh, predominant hormone, comes usually from the ovaries, but you do get some from breast tissue and from the adrenal glands. And then E3 or estriol is usually uh, pregnancy-related. And estrogen... uh, starts the um, maturing process through whatever mechanisms cause it, but the estrogen then would tend to mature the ovaries. The ovaries ovaries would produce their hormones, which would give a feedback loop to the hypothalamus and then to the pituitary, where they'd send off stimulating hormones to produce those hormones. And then estrogen is responsible for the menstrual cycle, could you tell? So you told us about the role of estrogen. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of progesterone and and how that's factoring in? Yes, progesterone helps to to build up and to to be able to organize the secretory endometrium, theoretically for uh, implantation. Um, it also modulates the female's uh, the mom's immune response so that it will accept foreign DNA, um, and it decreases 
contractility of the smooth muscles. Um, so that's why you would see many times varicose veins uh, because the smooth muscles in the veins of the lower extremities uh, start to have a gravity effect. Our, our bodies produce about 50% more at our blood and that needs a place to go. So there's a lot of available space in the uterus, in the placenta, but particularly in, in larger vessels. So that's why you tend to see your patients come in with problems with varicose veins. So Dr. Trumper, I understand that menopause and, and perimenopause is largely a clinical diagnosis, but can you sort of talk us through the process of how you make that diagnosis confidently and when, when there might be a role for lab work? Um, most women that come in with uh, symptoms of hot flashes, dry vagina, mood swings, depression, problems sleeping, tend to come in, and remember the population of patients I see are fairly well educated, but tend to come on early in the game during sort of the perimenopausal period. So at that point in time, the estrogen levels particularly, which is mostly responsible for the symptoms we see in menopause, um, most of those people are going to have pretty fluctuating estrogen levels. Sometimes they'll have hot flashes, sometimes they won't. But it will progress usually after the full year of not having periods um, to a full-fledged menopause. So you can do lab testing. There's a follicle-stimulating hormone that you can test for in um in women that you're suspecting menopause or premature ovarian failure. That's a pituitary hormone, and it responds to the feedback system of production of estrogen. The less estrogen, the higher the FSH level. And there's a certain level above which we say, okay, that's, that's menopause. So you can confirm it with clinical data. But in reality, you know, if it, you know, has hoof beats, it's a horse. And... <laughs> And that if you come in with many of the symptoms, um, you know, missing periods, having hot flashes and so forth, uh, you could pretty much presume they're on their way. And then, again, technically, once you've had no menses for a year, uh, then you can pretty much say menopause. Now, in patients with chemotherapy and patients with other kinds of issues, you do need to sort of rule that out. But in general, if you don't suspect they have any other problems, uh, thyroid disease, especially with hot flashes, uh, hyperthyroid um, infections, malignancies, and even some kinds of medicines can give you um, hot flashes. Certain medicines can cause that. So you rule those out. And then based upon either your clinical definition or upon some lab values, uh, you can say, yes, you're in menopause. Nobody's happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> the the reason we wanted to do this show is is because uh, constantly this is something that comes up in clinic. If you're a primary care provider, you're going to be in clinic and somebody every week is going to complain about hot flashes, uh, probably every day if you're seeing enough enough patients. And I think it's a lot of, at least me, I, I often feel that patients are disappointed with the results they're getting because currently I'm not really prescribing them a lot of hormone replacement therapy, which most people think is the most effective treatment. Um, so how do you kind of counsel patients when they're coming in with new hot flashes and how do you tailor their expectations about what kind of results they can get with therapy? So usually we talk about um, hot flashes in general terms. Um, most patients come in wanting a magic pill that's not dangerous and not hormone replacement uh, to make them go away completely. And you sort of have to somewhat limit the expectations. Now, you know, women used to die before menopause years ago. So this wasn't an issue until maybe baby boomers become, became the, the big uh, problem, I guess, in terms of wanting something to do uh, for their hot flashes. So we usually talk about uh, first of all, uh, treatment of hot flashes just based upon behavioral measures, which are pretty pretty easy to do and, and non-invasive. Some of those things could be layering your clothing, lowering the room temperature, and avoiding certain triggers um, in your diet. Uh, you can use fans and so forth. Uh, when those don't work, there are other options. I usually start from what I think have the least side effects to those which have the most. Um, and so I, I, everybody kind of talks about hormone therapy 
but I usually reserve that uh, for the end. There, there have been um, some antidepressants that uh, just incidentally had patients with decreased hot flashes when they took that. Uh, the first one was Effexor, but actually the only one that's FDA approved is uh, Paxil or Paroxetine. Um, and this is contraindicated in any patients on tamoxifen, just FYI. Selexor, Citrolopram, and it takes days, uh, not weeks, to see some kind of result in those, unlike for the treatment of depression. Um, for women who have bad night sweats, gabapentin is also a treatment. Some people feel that oral vitamin E might have an effect. Some People, especially during the perimenopausal, will get prescribed uh, progesterones themselves. Um, the problem with evaluating any treatment for menopause is there's a huge placebo effect. Um, and it confounds most of the studies. And it can be as uh, significant as 50% of patients with the placebo effect. So in terms of evaluating alternative therapies that we hear about, there's sort of two groups, one with maybe some evidence, but it's inconsistent. And those groups would be isoflavins, that would include soy and lentils, black cohosh, weight loss, and exercise. And the ones that have been proven ineffective, um, acupuncture, evening primrose, and flaxseed. So how, so, given all the, the, all the, the whole variety of modalities that you have. And I feel like, you know, when we're talking to our residents, this is sort of where they fall down because they almost have too many options. How do yeah. you sort of figure out what the first one you're going to reach for is? Is there an SSRI that you favor or is it based on side effect profile? Is it just always patient engagement or is there a certain algorithm that you go through um, choosing uh, these non-hormonal modalities? Usually um, when we're talking about hot flashes, I, again, I go through the treatments from the sort of the seemingly the least invasive or the least um, contraindications or the least side effects to the ones that are most. So I, I would start initially with probably an, well, I'd start with behavioral techniques to begin with. Right. Then, and I usually will see them back after a certain period of time to sort of evaluate what's going on. And I give them reading materials on the other things that I discussed so that if it's not working, they can kind of see what they, where they might go next. Um, and again, the next would probably be um, the SSRIs, some of the other um, medicines that have kind of come about, gabapentin, vitamin E, sort of as an off chance thing, a one-off that all of a sudden they'd see this does help hot flashes. Um, and then we, you know, the, the uh, alternative therapies, acupuncture, black co-wash, and so forth, um, none of them has been consistent, but it's probably worthwhile to try them because there is a placebo effect that's pretty significant. If you don't tell them that, maybe that'll help. <laughs> I like to think with, with the placebo effect, if a patient specifically asks if they can try a therapy, I, I usually will just tell them, well, you know, the evidence on this has been mixed. But if you want to try it, I think it'll be safe for you. And then, and then I'll let them try it, and, and they might get a good result. So it's uh, – That's exactly you know, right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I would do too. So, so knowing the uh, – to, to some extent the paucity of evidence for some of these modalities for treatment of hot flashes, what did you personally use when you went through menopause to control your hot flashes? Now, how do you know I went through menopause? <laughs> By the way, I'd oh, like to oh, say I... that that was Stuart that asked that question. Uh, this, yes. uh, I will not take credit for that. <laughs> okay. I was not anywhere near the microphone. <laughs> well, um, in in the early part of my career, we would give women pretty pretty um, pretty much a lot of women who had symptoms. Um, we would give them hormone therapy once they hit menopause, and even um, the treatment of osteoporosis. Uh, for prevention and the treatment in those days, somebody with a strong history of uh, cardiac heart disease in women. I've I've been you know raised on hormone therapy, um, so what I did is I didn't want to deal with all the symptoms. And what we do now a lot, and I kind of did this because I could, but I used <laughs> <laughs> I used transitional uh, low dose birth control pills. 
Um, so when you're going through that perimenopausal state, it's a really great, great way to not deal with, you know, weird bleeding and some of the side effects and so forth. If you see patients that are taking them have some of the side effects of hot flashes and so forth during the off week of your birth control pills, then you would take them continuously. Oh. Um, Again, keeping in mind their contraindications to birth control pills, uh, DVTs, smokers, age greater than age greater than 35 doesn't come up unless they're smokers now. So we know that's the age is not an, a factor. And then depending, I, I have them go off. There is no schedule for weaning, but it sort of seems like maybe going off a little bit slowly every other day or whatever. And this is presuming they're not using them for birth control. Um, but I have them wean off, see how they feel. If they're asymptomatic and doing great, then we've gotten through the worst. Uh, but many women will find that they do have uh, symptoms those first 10 years or so of menopause. So I take, and I actually do take hormone therapy. Um, uh, that's a disclaimer. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> but my family doesn't die of heart disease or breast cancer. Uh, the women usually have uh, complications of osteoporosis. Uh, there's actually a higher incidence of osteoporosis in Norwegian women. So I come by it uh, genetically. But that was my choice, and I take the lowest of what I consider the lowest effective dose, but I've never really gone through horrible symptoms. But I, I know the risks and, and the benefits of it well enough to make that decision, I believe. You feel adequately informed. Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. I wanted to just ask a follow-up about the dose, uh, the birth control versus the hormone replacement therapy dose that's normally given for menopausal symptoms. Are they the same dose of hormones? No, it's about three times what you would get in hormone replacement. And again, it depends on what dose of estrogen or progesterone you start them off. But um, the 0.625 of the estrogen, uh, primarin was sort of the most common thing that was prescribed, is probably about a third of the um, efficacy or a third of the potency of estrogen in terms of birth control pills when you're talking about the 20 micrograms to 35 micrograms of estrogen in most birth control pills. So but before we, we really get into some more of the specifics of hormone replacement therapy, one of the questions that we oftentimes get in the primary care practice setting is how best to treat vulvovaginal um, atrophy, specifically with uh, dyspareunia when you're going through menopause or in the postmenopausal state. Um, what non-prescription products would you recommend? And if we're going to use um, vaginal estrogen cream, what kinds of concerns do we need to watch out for? Okay. Um, I usually, you know, a couple years ago, I would, if it's dyspareunia, particularly just have them use some kind of lubricant, one of the KY jellies, or you could get some of the over-counter, the over-the-counter over things, replens or Astroglide. They're a lot more expensive, but KY jelly is, is fine. But it turns out that it's much more effective as you, if you use it on a daily basis for dyspareunia. So um, I've been using that with, I, I think, some success. This has sort of been over the last year or so. Um, but I would, I would probably start with that because most women just use it when they have intercourse rather than using it on a pretty much nightly basis. It also helps with dry vagina, which can definitely be one of the um, cofactors with dyspareunia. Actually, have, having intercourse more frequently um, it increases the stretching and actually increases the blood flow to the vaginal uh, estrogen-sensitive tissue. Um, and some women who don't have intercourse regularly may uh, go to vaginal dilators. And we also have a pelvic physical therapy program that we refer people to uh, for pelvic muscle floor weakness or spasming. The, the most effective in terms of use um, is, is vaginal estrogen, as you mentioned. There is a risk of thrombotic events, but it's very low. And theoretically, if you're using a low enough dose, very little is getting systemic. It restores the acidity of the vagina. It thickens the epithelium. It actually um, helps with uh, bladder function, um, improves dryness. Dryness, excuse me. Um, so for low dose estrogens, that's all you need. When you get into the higher dose of estrogens, um, they can be um, 
oh, something like estrace that's uh, greater than 50 milligrams. Um, there's something called an estring, which is a sort of a plastic or vinyl ring that you place in the vagina for three months at a time. If you have the low-dose one, you don't need the progesterone for protection for endometrial cancer. If you use the higher dose, then you will need, a, need to take some kind of progesterone. The um, other things, the conjugated estrogen cream and Vagifem, which is also an estrogen. Uh, again, the lower doses, you don't need the progesterone. The higher doses, you do. Uh, the problem with the with the uh, with the estrogen, or, or excuse me, taking the progesterone, is there's sometimes side effects from that uh, tender breast because you are usually needing to take that um, orally, so you do get more of a systemic effect. Let's say you're practicing on a budget. Inter- Paul practices in the inner city. Um, in the fu- near future, I'll probably be practicing in the inner city again. W- what what sort of medications can we get uh, on a budget uh, for for this vulvovaginal atrophy complaint? You know that's been a real problem. And what I would do, depending on their insurance, is to have them find out or call a pharmacist. Um, have them call around and uh, look at the different options for treatment for vaginal estrogen. Some of them are real expensive, and some pharmacies charge more than others if you're getting it um, uh, without insurance. And a lot of things that used to be uh, just a relatively reasonable copay are now much more expensive. But there's usually going to be one type of uh, vaginal estrogen that the insurance company um, will actually accept. And sometimes you have to write notes to, to the insurance companies. And one, one other follow-up question, uh, you were mentioning the, the vaginal lubricants. Um, and, and I would ask about is, is olive oil included in that and, and do these over the counter lubricants help prevent UTIs and some of the kind of like itching or irritative, irritative symptoms that people complain of? The um, well, the vaginal and bladder epithelium is still somewhat estrogen dependent. There will be a small amount of relief um, from some of the the lubricants, just because you lose the friction component, which gives you kind of little mini abrasions and places for yeast infections to grow and so forth. Um, it's, it's really the olive oil. Uh, some people do use that. Again, I don't think there's really good data on that, but um, I, it's certainly something uh, I have patients using, um, especially by choice. They like it if, if it's by choice. It seems To some people, it seems less messy, but again, the KY jelly is probably the cheapest, but it's water-soluble, so it's a little bit less messy. Mm, olive oil. I've seen it. The, the OB guy at Cashlack uses believe it. it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I did want to go back to some of the medications that we were talking about before. Uh, gabapentin. Uh, let, oh yeah. Go ahead. Let, let me, let me just want add one caveat. Um, we do, depending on the type of breast cancer and the permission of the oncologist for women with breast cancer, particularly women, um, you know, who are sort of in the perimenopausal period, we do look at, um, we do look at uh, some things, uh, the estering, the lower dose ones that are less systemic um, for treatment of vaginal dryness. They also, as an oncologist, have to look at their risk of recurrence, um, whether or not they're on tamoxifen, whether or not they have any other uh, sideline problems. But it is, in many situations, um, an option for women with breast cancer. Okay, that's good to know. But get the permission of the oncologist so that uh, liability-wise, it's probably a smart thing to do. Yeah, they can take the blame. I did want to ask just about the specific uh, dose uh, gabapentin that, that you would use in patients uh, that are having night sweats. I usually go pretty much by the lowest starting dose and see what's effective. If somebody's much larger, I might start at a little bit higher dose. But I would start with the lowest dose and then transition up. So that would be a 100-milligram tablet. It also comes in 300, 400, 600-milligram tablets, but Most generally... capsules, though. Yeah, they're cap- I, I capsules. It, Sorry, capsules. And it's, it's usually two or three times a day, too. 
Um, so you can increase the dose. Um, I, I want to say the starting dose is probably three or 400, but in divided doses. Okay. So not just at nighttime. Right. Normally I've seen 300 milligrams three times a day, just because of the, the, uh, um, pharmacology of gabapentin. So otherwise you exactly. may have, you may have symptoms in the morning and not at night. But then again, if you're just having night sweats, maybe it's good to just dose it at night only if they're limited by orthostasis or um, orthostatic hypotension with the gabapentin. That's correct. And um, you can start, I would start at the lowest possible dose because you can have a placebo effect too. Yeah. So there you go. Right. <laughs> 50%. And then just for the audience, I think we kind of, we, we, we mentioned it earlier, but tamoxifen uh, with multiple SSRIs or SNRIs will have a drug-drug interaction, basically where tamoxifen could become less um, efficacious if if you're using it with, I think Effexor is one of the ones that interacts with it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, before you use tamoxifen with, uh, or before you use an SSRI or SNRI, just make sure you look and, and make sure it's not one that interacts with tamoxifen. I just wanted to highlight that for the listeners. I want to talk about, uh, there was a, I heard in an attending um, who's a bit older than me quote that there one, someone told them when they were in training that every woman deserves to die with clutching their hormone replacement pills in their palm. And I guess there was a time where that was kind of, everyone was on it. And can you tell us a little bit about the women's health, health initiative and what, what that showed and, and why it changed practice? I, I was of the era where you would uh, prescribe hormone replacement. Um, and then the Women's Health Initiative uh, started with a fairly large program with uh, two main groups. One was the estrogen uh, group, estrogen only for women who did not have uteruses uh, versus a placebo. And the second study was the estrogen progesterone wing of that uh, against placebo as well. And the main problems that they seemed to find were the increased risk of cardiovascular problems, especially ischemic stroke, breast cancer, uh, more with the estrogen progesterone group, gallbladder disease, and migraine headaches. In that data, though, too, they saw there was less endometrial cancer, less colorectal cancer, osteoporosis, and recurrent UTIs. When when the study came out, um, remember we used to we used to pre uh, prescribe it for women who had a family history or a strong risk factors for cardiovascular diseases, and that epidemiologic studies felt that that and for osteoporosis too that those were good treatments. And so there was something about the study that didn't really follow along with that. And I think these are interesting take home points. When you look at the timing of when women started hormone replacement, now the average age of first start was age 63 in this study. And, you know, obviously menopause starts around 51. When they broke those two groups down um, to less than 10 years from menopause versus greater than 10 years from menopause, there actually is some uh, positive effects, very little negative effects on the younger group. The uh, evidence about breast cancer may be a slight increase, but the rest of the things, including cardiovascular disease, did not did not seem to pan out for that younger group. And I think that goes along with our skepticism about that study originally, that we know that women, their cholesterol profile is better when you're of reproductive age having estrogen than when you have less estrogen. And so the feeling was that if you if your estrogen decreased, then you were probably more susceptible to forming um, plaques, cholesterol plaques, and then um, subsequently uh, having cardiovascular events. Now, if you start early on, so that first 10 years, um, you're going to form less plaques. So that seemed to make sense. However, if you started after the 10 years, you form plaques, and now you're giving somebody something that does increase the risk of cardiovascular issues. So uh, time of first start is going to be very, very important. Now, the most, most women who start early, um, and this is sort of a good thing, come in with hot flashes, making them, making them crazy. So hot flashes are the big symptom. They usually don't come in, uh, you know, at age 60 and say, oh my God, my hot flashes are so bad. So 
you know, using that information to help counsel patients. And I, I usually have some uh, numbers and so forth ready for them and, and evaluating their ultimate risk. But that's a that's kind of a, a really powerful thing to know that in a younger population, that that's uh, certainly a, a reasonable alternative. The, the, the other thing to remember is that um, in, in terms of the study, none of these effects were seen until after five years. So even for even the um, American College and the FDA and so forth um, say that, you know, five years um, with the lowest effective dose. Um, so so beyond that, then you talk to your patient about what's going on. But I would not start a woman who was 10 years out of menopause on hormone replacement, nor would she probably nor would that be the best choice for her current complaints, which are going to be mostly dry vagina and dyspareunia. That's that's the big one, uh, age 60 and over. So, so do- Dr. Tremper, are there any studies that are looking at women in the perimenopausal phase and then and then giving them estrogen at that point and following them longitudinally looking at any morbidity and mortality from that? No, they just extrapolate it from uh, birth control data and then okay. the Women's Health Initiative. Now, now somebody may be studying that. I'm just not aware of it. Right, right. And I've, I've been on, on lookout, but I haven't seen anything significant published in the past five to 10 years. When you start someone on hormone replacement therapy, let's say you have someone in, in uh, a woman in her early 50s, she's gone through menopause, she's having hot flashes. You try some of these non-pharmacologic things and you're not having success and you decide you're going to try, you, you try an SSRI or SNRI and you decide you're going to go to hormone replacement therapy. Can you tell us like uh, an agent you might reach for and what sort of dose would you start and how do you titrate it? How do you follow them? The, the data on all of the risk factors, it was done with, uh, an estrogen, primarin, which is a conjugated equine estrogen, um, at 0.625, 0.625. And the progesterone was uh, Provera. Um, I, I, it was either 5 or 10. But um, those were the ones the study were done on. So extrapolating changes in the estrogen or progesterone is still you know, not quite empirical, but they have studied the effect of different estrogens and progesterone on the cardiovascular system and so forth. I would probably start them on just the regular estrogen progesterone, Primrin and Provera or Primpro it's available as, which actually has gotten a lot more expensive lately too. Um, so it's an estradiol and uh, give them really the lowest of what I consider the lowest effective dose, which is 0.3 um, and 2.5 for the progesterone. Now, some of the progestins, some of the progesterones may have a, a better effect. For example, levonorgestrel uh, bypasses the liver and the cardiovascular effects aren't quite as uh pronounced. So regular primarin or progest- regular progesterone is going to go through the liver, the oral progesterone. Um, and there it stimulates some of the C-reactive proteins. So I'm looking at progesterones and seeing what alternatives there may be. Um, some of the things, although they haven't studied them in detail, but it sort of makes intrinsic sense. And a lot of female gynecologists are doing this now, but they're using levonorgestrel in the form of an IUD. So all you're taking is the estrogen and estrogen is available in patches and so forth. And again, with the estrogen, you don't have the first pass effect in the liver as much as you do um, with some of the oral preparations. I'm still not ready to go there, but I think with the progesterones, I would consider that at this point in time. Is that the, is the brand name for that levonorgestrel, is that the Mirena uh, IUD? Okay. Now, these patients, they take an oral estrogen in low dose, and then they have the, uh, the, the, the Mirena IUD. And the IUD, interestingly enough, it's been approved in this country for uh, birth control. Most of these women don't need birth control, but it's been imp- uh, approved in this uh, country for birth control for five years, but in Europe, it's for seven years. So there are some uh, FDA workings now to get it approved for seven. But we usually, if somebody has an IUD, would would consider using that uh, for the full seven years. The other thing that's been kind of interesting, um, 
that I briefly touch on is the um, selective estrogen modulator receptors. There may be some benefit in that that a lot of women use for osteoporosis, but it does help with hot flashes, but it doesn't help with a lot of some of the other symptoms. So that might be a consideration um, when you have somebody on estrogen therapy and they're taking a type of progesterone and have some symptoms like breast tenderness, the uh, SERMs uh, might be an appropriate uh uh, choice. They are available in this country as the combination of estrogen and the SERMs. So there hasn't been a lot of studies on those in this country, but that's something that I think may be coming up. It seems to have um, less effects too on the cholesterol profile and heart disease. And Dr. Tripper, when you start these agents, I was just going to ask, when you, when you start these agents, specifically the hormone replacement therapy, is what, what kind of monitoring do you do? What kind of follow-up um, do you recommend? Um, just to evaluate how the patient is doing. Yeah, I usually I usually have them come in after uh, three months of therapy, um, touch bases with how they're doing. I wouldn't necessarily I'd monitor symptoms. That's that's the main thing, um, and I I would keep an eye and uh, instruct them if you have any abnormal bleeding on them um, to contact us. The, um, the when we talk about the uh, uh, endometrial. Pr- Uh, protection effect of the progestins. Um, We really are uh, looking to prevent endometrial cancer because when you have more unopposed estrogen, um, sometimes very heavy set women or women are taking estrogen without the progesterone will have sort of a proliferation of of endometrial cells leading to an increase in hyperplasia, what we call atypical hyperplasia. Um, That's so if you get a patient coming in that's either postmenopausal and having bleeding or postmenopausal and on hormone replacement and you can't explain the bleeding, then um, we usually would like the internist to go ahead and order an ultrasound, um, a pelvic ultrasound to look specifically at the endometrial stripe, um, the lining of the uterus, the two sides kind of compressed together. And that's called the endometrial stripe. And if it's under four millimeters, then it's not uterine cancer. So that's what you're looking for. If it's greater than four four millimeters, it doesn't mean it's uterine cancer, but then you uh, are obligated to do an endometrial biopsy or uterine sampling to rule out um, any abnormal cell growth. So just to clarify there, you said that if someone's on hormone replacement therapy, they have in their postmenopausal, they have bleeding then we should get the ultrasound. They, if the ultrasound has the stripe less than four millimeters, then they they don't necessarily need they don't need the biopsy. But if it's greater than four millimeters, we should be sending them to you, to for an endometrial biopsy or your colleagues that's, at our institution. That's right, not just to her. <laughs> we'll put them on a plane to Michigan to uh, see you for that for that endometrial biopsy. You're the best. Wonderful. <laughs> Well, the, the ones that are uh, the biopsies that you do, you use a small uh, pipel that's flexible and you insert it into the cervical os. And the problem with a lot of menopausal women that haven't been on hormone therapy is there's a lot of stenosis in it. And it's really a difficult thing to do. There are little tricks you can use. But boy, you know, we when they came out with the studies uh, that showed that four millimeters ruled out uh, uterine cancer, that was a great day for all of us. Hmm. So we have a brief question, maybe not very brief, about bioidentical hormone therapy. What's your position on it? And what evidence is there to support or refute bioidentical hormone therapy? For, for most gynecologists, this is like, you know, the, the most entertaining thing. Um, I give a talk um, and the, um, the title of the talk is Can Oprah and Suzanne Be Wrong? And they're <laughs> Suzanne Summers. So that's uh, they both are proponents of bioidentical hormones. Now, bioidentical hormones are products that are chemically identical to what your body makes. Um, They can be natural, plant or animal, but usually synthesized bioidentical hormones don't count. And then they're compounded to reach a target level of hormones in the body. So it's not just the type of hormones you're taking, but it's how you prescribe them and the doses. So the claims that they have is that if you test uh, saliva or blood, you can find deficiencies in the hormones that they will sometimes provide, um, estrogens, 
uh, DHEA, testosterone, progesterone. And then they use those deficiencies uh, to replace what is necessary in that particular patient. And to replace it, they usually compound um, and personalize this. And people claim, or the claims are that it's more effective. And when testing, uh, testing can be repeated to change maybe the compounds, the percentages. The claim is it's safer than conventional hormone therapy and it's more effective. And so my next section is myth busting. <laughs> um, so saliva and blood testing is completely bogus. The levels of the hormones you're looking at vary greatly during the day. And in most of them, you, you don't have a good range of normal values. It's not like doing thyroid testing to change your thyroid hormone level. It's just not as cut, cut and dried. Um, so it's hard to define deficiencies. Um, it's hard to determine the dose. There's variable, variable absorption. Sometimes they can be capsules or they can be creams. And the retesting is no more useful than the initial testing. Compounding is a problem because it's not FDA approved. Uh, there, can, there have been studies that shows that there are significant variabilities in the compounds when they're tested between pharmacists and between different facilities. Uh, these aren't necessarily equally distributed in patients, and it's not necessarily getting what you think you're getting. So um, compounding is not FDA approved for these particular reasons. For safety and efficacy, there's absolutely no data. Safety relies, uh, people just think that because the Women's Health Initiative came out that, oh, that stuff is horrible and it's dangerous, so I'm going to use the bioidenticals. Um, and the reason I know it's not as dangerous is there are no FDA inserts in the box. <laughs> and they're, and they're, they're, I know this is the reasoning sometime. And there's no evidence of the doses or side effects that there are. Efficacy, again, you've got the placebo effect going on. It could be effective, but the claims are based on anecdotal information, and there is very little um, data available to compare them. Now, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the FDA uh, do not support the use of bioidentical hormones, and it's, it's a rare insurance company that's going to cover them. <laughs> so this is a rather uh, naive question, but so bioidentical, you said it comes from plants or animals. Doesn't the hormones that we, that like the Premarin, isn't that from horse, isn't that conjugated horse estrogen? Is that what, and so yeah. what's the difference, like where we're getting it from? Cause that is from an animal. So how is that different with then the bioidentical hormones? We usually, uh, when we're doing regular, uh, conjugated equine estrogens, we have specific doses and we titrate it mainly for symptoms. So that's why I do some of the follow-up visit is to titrate for symptoms, so the lowest effective dose. Uh, we don't we don't do levels because they don't mean anything. But for um, conjugated es equine estrogens, they do use those, but they do testing and see how much you need, and the doses and percentages can be really variable based on data that is 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 basically not there. I see. Right. Okay. It's more. It's the more the testing that goes along with it that is is what's the con is the controversial part. The and the and also the formulations aren't FDA tested. That's kind of right. what you're so, saying. So so instead of using the uh, estrogen and Primarin, they're using like a like a what seventeen beta estradiol or yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. One of those. And basically. Uh, these these clinics are charging patients lots of money. It's probably not covered by insurance, so it's probably out of pocket. I've seen some of these around uh, around where I live in San Antonio. But yet these women seem to swear by it too. So I, I mean, I, again, some of it could it could be a placebo effect. I I don't know. But there but there can be an effect because you are giving them some estrogen, some right. progesterone. But the way that it's made and the uh, data. Uh, that it's based upon just just hasn't been done yet. So right. yeah, there there can be effects, but it doesn't mean it's any safer. It doesn't really, you know, tell you what dose you need. There just isn't enough data available. But that's become the big thing. And the other thing, I don't know if you noticed in this country, but if something is personalized, it's always better. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this is America. I yep. mean, 
Come on. You betcha. <laughs> I deserve my own special dose. <laughs> Only you, Paul. I'll give you lots you of do, permarin. Paul, I agree. Okay, guys. I think I think we've taken enough of Dr. Tremper's time, and I I don't really have other questions, Stuart or Paul, before we get our take-home points. Do yeah, you have I've further got, questions. I've got, I've got one trivia question. Do you know which animals in the animal kingdom do uh, go through menopause besides humans? Do you happen to know? Anybody? Anyone? I don't know, but um, the longer you live, well, it's it's actually only only three, including humans. It's the short-finned pilot whale and killer whales. <laughs> So <laughs> this is this is something that I learned while I, I can't think I was listening to NPR about menopause and uh, it was going over the, the different mammals that uh, go through menopause and it's only us and whales. And the thought process is that going through menopause helps you to at least refocus your child rearing skills so that you're able to uh, better take care of your grandchildren. Well, we will put that link. We'll put that link in the show notes for the listeners, Stuart, so they can uh, remember the, the animals that go through menopause. Yeah, it's very important. Dr. Tremper, I'd just like to ask you for two or three take-home points that you can give to the audience before we let you go. I guess the first is when a woman comes in and has the classic symptoms and has no menses and she's her life is miserable, um, you believe her, but you also need to look at a couple things. You know, how old is she? Is she an appropriate candidate um, for certain therapies? But also to reassure her that this is normal. You know, there's there's a lot, loss of libido is another big thing. So many times when a woman comes in and talks about menopause, the husband will come too, um, because it is a big difference in their relationship. So I, I, I try to give the best advice I can, but Again, it's another problem, I guess, of our society that aging is just not acceptable. And if you're not how you were when you were 45 or 40, then that's not okay. I want to be the same as I was then. So you have to be somewhat realistic, but also make people realize that this is a normal uh, normal part of your life. Okay, thank you. And I apologize for any inappropriate questions that one of my colleagues... <laughs> Who shall say remain nameless might have asked. What are you talking about? <laughs> it was all appropriate. <laughs> uh, well, thank oh you. God. Thank you. You're to, very welcome. To you and uh, thanks to your son for, for setting this up. This was fun. I think I certainly yeah. will not forget that the what what you told us we would never forget uh, that you were a serial game show uh, winner. I didn't even know that was a thing. So You know, I could have used. I could have used that uh, trivia question on the uh, menopause of animals, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess you'll need to go, you'll need to go on the game shows next. I had a I had a friend in high school who went to USC. I do and, not believe it. And he was on. Uh, thank thank you, Paul. <laughs> he uh, he won he won the the Price is Right, and uh, he won like a car or something. And his sister also was on The Price is Right and won a car when she was out there. But I thought that was just a fluke. But I guess maybe there is something to it. Maybe you can kind of game the system a little bit. You have to have the game show face. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and it, it's interesting. The game shows were the first reality TV because what the producers would tell you is you don't have to act crazy. We just want to know a little bit about you so people can either hate you or cheer for you. Um, and. <laughs> So, you know, being a female medical student, um, you know, scrounging my way through life uh, was a real good sort of talking point. So, um, great story. yeah, so so game shows um, were really the first reality TV shows. You kind of cheered for people or hoped another person would win. Yeah, I won't I won't introduce you as a former reality TV star when I read your bio for the show. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> <laughs> that presently has bad connotations. <laughs> I'm, pr I'm proud. I'm proud of it. <laughs> yeah. No, you should be. That's a very. No, cool you story. should be. Yeah. yeah. I was lightly political, but yeah. And all honestly, this was extraordinarily helpful. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. All right, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. 
We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we want your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our page on Facebook or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Otto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Good night. Oh, hi, Paul. Hi, Paul.